his mother die on the journey back. His mother was 56 years old at the time, but of course she was satisfied with the fact that she finally saw her son come to faith in Christ. A lot of people might ask the question, though, what happened to his mistress? Because remember, Augustine was never married. He lived with this woman for years, had a son with him, and uh, whatever happened to her? Well, there's a couple things to remember. The law in Rome did not allow them to marry because Roman law did not allow people of different classes to marry, and Augustine was of a higher class than uh, his mistress. But biblically, we know they still should have married anyway because they had you know, lived together and they had a son together. Uh, but there were some other issues as well. After Augustine's conversion, his mistress had become a vowed celibate. And Augustine never married her either, but practiced abstinence for the rest of his life. And this goes back to what we talked about before, this Neoplatonist or Neoplatonist emphasis and influence where they saw marriage as sort of a secondary way of life and the material and the physical things were lower than the spiritual and the heavenly things. So both of them remained unmarried for the rest of their lives. And again, we have to understand their mindset here because in that time, it's not like anyone was thinking that Augustine was doing anything scandalous. Uh, in, in people's minds, in, in people's minds in the church, they thought that they were doing a good thing you know, to, to actually decide to just practice abstinence the rest of their lives. So that's whatever happened with, with that situation. Augustine returned to his hometown of Thagasti in North Africa. He sold all of his land and possessions, and then he founded a small monastery there, and he began to live as a monk. In the year 391, he was visiting a Catholic church in Hippo, which was in northern Africa, modern-day Algeria. And this would have been when he was about 37 years old. And he had kind of made a name for himself at this time through his writings already. And the congregation there, understanding and knowing who he was, uh, wanted him to be one of the presbyters there. And he was reluctant at first, but then accepted it as the will of God. So at the age of 37, he became a presbyter there at the church in Hippo. Five years after that, in the year 396, the bishop there of Hippo died. His name was Val Valerius. And so Augustine then w was asked to be bishop, and he became bishop there at the church in Hippo. And he would remain bishop there for 34 years until his death. So he would be known as the bishop there in the city of Hippo. Nick Needham says this about Augustine's ministry. He was a preacher, a practical church administrator, a theologian, a mystic, a man of learning, a leader of the monastic movement, a writer of many books, and a pastoral counselor. Among the early church fathers, there were few who surpassed Augustine in these roles and none who combined them all so successfully. So that's some words concerning Augustine. Now, in this period of time, this 34-year period, there were many ways in which Augustine was influential. He, if you remember, had been formed by the philosophies which had influenced him early on in his life prior to his conversion. And so one of those influences we mentioned before was the Neoplatonist philosophy. And he would become more biblical in his thinking as time went on, but he was what you would say he died a work in progress. He never 
completely escaped the influences of that Neoplatonist way of thinking that he had prior to his conversion. But he ended up writing against the Manichees. And if you remember, he, as I mentioned, he was a part of that cult for about nine years. And he writes about how he was, uh, he was not satisfied with Manichaeanism. In his study of science, before he was a Christian, he was let out of Manichaeanism. Uh, the death of a friend that he had shook him up, and Manichaeanism couldn't give him the answers. Also, the priesthood there in Manichaeanism failed to give him good answers to his questions as well. So this all led to his uh, leaving of Manichaeanism, but he was a strong opponent of theirs after he became a believer. He also battled against Neoplatonism and wrote against them, but he never completely escaped its influence. As time went on, their influence diminished, but nevertheless, he never completely escaped it. But what we want to focus on now as we look at the life of Augustine is we want to focus on two main controversies that he went through in his ministry. And these are the ones that he's most well known for. If you know just a general history of Augustine, you know these two controversies he was involved with. Number one, the Donatist controversy. And number two, the Pelagian controversy. Now this is really important because his involvement in these controversies is going to have major effects through the rest of church history, even to our own day. His involvement in the Donatist controversy and in the Pelagian controversy. You see, Augustine had a contradiction in his mind and in his teaching. His doctrine of grace, in many ways, contradicted his doctrine of the church. In his doctrine of the church, in many ways, you could say it was what we know of as Roman Catholic in his understanding of sacraments and his understanding of the structure of the church and so forth. Whereas his doctrine of grace was what we would refer to as being much more Protestant or Reformed. And in fact, his doctrine of grace contributed, and contributed to the Reformation and in many ways made the Reformation possible. And the Reformation in many ways was an Augustinian revival. And it's interesting because it seems that he was aware that he had this contradiction in his mind, but he never completely, you know, you could say he didn't live long enough to recognize that and maybe make some corrections. The Reformation, it's been said in many ways, was the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. And we'll see why here in just a moment. You can switch on to the next one. Let's focus now on the Donatist controversy. We looked at Donatism before, twice, as we've been going through church history here, but I gotta mention this again because this was a major controversy for Augustine. The Donatists, if you remember, they broke off from the Catholic Church and they were their own church in North Africa. The issue was they did not believe that a bishop or a presbyter who had lapsed during a time of persecution should be allowed back into the church. So they believed what was referred to as ex opera operanti, and that is a sacrament is only valid if the one performing the sacrament is in a state of grace. So if a presbyter had baptized somebody and then later on had lapsed under persecution, they believed that the baptism was not a legitimate baptism. So that was the view. And they believed that the presbyter or bishop should not be allowed back in the church. Whereas the Catholics believed in ex opera operato, which was the sacrament is valid if it is done in the right way. So if a presbyter baptizes somebody 
even if he laughs you years later, it doesn't matter. The baptism is still valid. So there was a disagreement. Other than that, there wasn't much theological difference between the Donatists and the Catholics. But this was the main issue that uh, separated them. The Donatists believed that if one received a sacrament from any bishop or presbyter who had compromised, the spiritual effect of the sacrament was nullified. And the Donatist claim was is they wanted a pure church. And they believed that the Catholic Church was an apostate church with a false clergy. The Donatists actually, they would rebaptize anyone who came out of the Catholic Church and joined a Donatist church. Whereas on the other hand, the Catholics did not rebaptize Donatists who left and became a part of their fellowship because they believed that if one was baptized in water in the name of the Trinity, it was a valid baptism. And their issues with the Donatists were they questioned, did the Donatists forget that saints still sin and that sinners can still repent? And also just this just caused so many issues because at this time marriage was also being looked at as a sacrament. So if a presbyter leads in a marriage ceremony and later he lapses, the question comes up, are the two people really married? You know, so this caused a lot of problems. So Augustine and the Catholics saw this as very important to battle against this. Now, obviously for us, looking at this controversy, in many ways we would say that many of the issues in this controversy really are not even legitimate issues to debate about uh, because we don't believe that the ordinances, for example, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, convey grace to those who are involved with those ordinances. So for us, a lot of things in this controversy we would see as not even, don't even need to debate about because it comes from a misunderstanding of the nature of the ordinances. But at the same time, we would, I think, agree that the Catholics were right in saying that if a presbyter baptizes somebody and years later he lapses, uh, the baptism is still legitimate. So if somebody in a church like ours would baptize somebody who professed faith in Christ and 10 years later commits apostasy, that baptism is still legitimate because the issue is what's the heart of the person who's being baptized and is the baptism being done in a biblical way. Also, I think we would agree with the Catholics at least concerning the issue of rebaptism. Uh, we don't face this a lot today, but this still does exist. For example, you do have certain Baptists who are known as gliders, Baptist gliders. And they believe that if somebody becomes a part of their church, that they should be rebaptized if they were baptized in a church that was not a Baptist church. So let's say that someone was converted and they were baptized, let's say, in a non-denominational church. Well, if they later start to believe some of the Baptist bride are distinctives. They believe, okay, they become a part of our church. They need to be rebaptized because they were not baptized in a Baptist church. Personally, I disagree with that. I think that if you were baptized in a church that was non-denominational, Pentecostal, whatever, and you were really converted and you were baptized in a biblical way, there's no reason to be rebaptized. It just doesn't make any sense. So biblically speaking, there's no evidence in Scripture that that should be done. Donatism was large in number. There was a church council in the year 411, and attending that council in North Africa, there were 286 Catholic bishops, 284 Donatist bishops. It just shows how many bishops they had. They had a lot. 
Augustine preached and wrote against the Donatists, and the Donatists had been the majority, but eventually the Catholics became the majority again. Augustine believed that since the Catholic Church in Northwest Africa was recognized by and in fellowship with the rest of the Catholic Church throughout the empire, that they, not the Donatists, were the true church. Augustine also made reference to moral scandals that had occurred amongst the Donatists. So the Donatists were known for pointing to the Catholics as a corrupt church, a sinful church, but he says, look, you have some scandals in the Donatist church as well. He pointed out that the church on earth was always a mixed community of true and false professors. Also, Augustine taught that baptism outside the Catholic church was valid, but it would never produce its spiritual fruit of salvation if the person never joined the Catholic church. So this was a view that was similar to Cyprian's. If you remember when we studied Cyprian's, the view that the Catholic church as was the one body in which the Holy Spirit worked savingly. So here again, you have some issues concerning Augustine's doctrine of the church and the way that he viewed the Catholic church and its doctrines, which wasn't you know, necessarily just a, a new view at the time, but it was the com turning into the common view at the time. I want to also mention a few things about Augustine and persecution because oftentimes Augustine is blamed for the persecution that occurred at the hands of the, the Roman Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages and even up to the time of the Reformation. And they say that because Augustine persecuted believers or fellow Christians in the 5th century that this just led to what you had with the Inquisition in the Middle Ages. I want to say a few things about that. First of all, it is true that people used both Augustine's arguments and the authority of Augustine's name to persecute religious nonconformists throughout the Middle Ages who would not join the Catholic Church, who were Christians, professed professing Christians, whether they were really Christians or part of a cult, but nevertheless, they persecuted them. The Roman Catholic Church did, and they used Augustine's name to support their practice. It is also true that Augustine eventually supported the practice of using the power of the state to force the Donatists back into the Catholic Church. That's all true. We can't whitewash the history. That is all true concerning Augustine. But it's also important that we understand the context in which he was living. First of all, Honorius, who was the emperor in the West at that time, he started to put pressure in Northwest Africa. Now remember here, understand that way of thinking. We grew up always seeing different denominations just rising in any big problem. That, that's, that's what we have always known. When the Donatists split off with the Catholics, remember we talked about before that it was an absolute scandal that in one city you had two, two different churches. Just that idea. They didn't grow up the way we did. So Augustine saw it as a horrible thing that you actually had a divided church. So again, just we need to understand that way of thinking. I don't think that we should support the policies that Augustine made arguments for at all. But I also just want to mention, I think it's very unfair to try to use Augustine's name to justify the practices of the church at Rome throughout the Middle Ages and to say that Augustine was at fault for the torture and the murder and the slaughter of those who would not join the Roman Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages. Augustine would have never 
even dream that anyone would abuse his manipulation. You know, it's kind of like some people blame Martin Luther for the Holocaust and the actions of the Nazis against the Jews because of what Martin Luther wrote against the Jews. But what Martin Luther wrote against the Jews, that was the common belief at the time. It wasn't like Martin Luther was just rare in his writings against the Jews. And Martin Luther would have never even dreamed of supporting what the Nazis did to the Jewish people. So we have to just be careful here. You have to understand the person in their context. And even if we disagree with them or if they did wrong, that's not to say that they're at fault for what the Nazis did or what the church at Rome later did to others. So it's important to mention that. But here again we see church-state intermingling, which we started to see in the early 300s already. This is known as sacralism, where you have the church and the state intermingling. And eventually, when Rome would fall, close to the end of Augustine's life, there would be a power vacuum. And eventually, what would happen then is the popes would step in and they would take control. Eventually, Donatism ended, but this was Augustine's involvement in this particular controversy. Any questions or comments before we move on? Because we have some time here yet. We'll move on to the next uh, controversy. Yes. He was. He was a Muslim. I don't know how deeply he was, in all honesty. Uh, I can remember reading a book before by A.W. Tozer. I uh, can't remember the title of it now. But A.W. Tozer was a mystician, you know. And Tozer, I, know, I can remember him quoting or speaking highly of Augustine in that. But how deep of a mystic he was, that I just don't know. But I know that he was. All right, you can click on to the next one now. Let's move on to the Pelagian controversy. Now, this was the second major controversy that Augustine was involved in. He once wrote a famous prayer, which had these words in it. Lord, give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. Okay, Lord, give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. A British monk by the name of Pelagius strongly disagreed with the prayer because he believed that God would never give a command unless he also gave man the ability to accomplish that command. Whereas Augustine's written prayer testified to his belief that all of life is of grace and we can do the good things that we do because God gives us the grace to do those things. So we see here the strong disagreement between Augustine and Pelagius. So thus we have the beginnings of the Augustinian-Pelagian controversy, particularly it was a controversy over the issue of free will. Pelagius, now Augustine prayed that prayer. Here's a quote from Pelagius. Pelagius was known as saying this, if I ought, I can. If I ought, I can. So you see the, the complete different opinion that he had in belief that he had compared to Augustine that he wrote in that prayer. Now, I just want you to understand, too, how important this controversy was because this has an effect throughout the rest of church history. And we'll see that, Lord willing, as time goes on. But just to help you to understand how important this was, the historian Adolf Harnoff wrote this concerning this controversy. There has never perhaps been another crisis of equal importance in church history 
in which the opponents have expressed the principles at issue so clearly and abstractly. The Arian dispute before the Council of Nicaea can alone compare with the Pelagian controversy. This was not a light deal. This was very, very important. Now, Pelagius, as I mentioned, he was a monk. He was a British monk. And he came to Rome in the year 383, so just about three years before Augustine's conversion. He was shocked at the worldliness that he saw among the Christians there. Does that sound familiar at all? Do you know his history? Who else had a similar experience? Martin Luther, many years later, when he was going to try, when he went to Rome, he was shocked at the, at the worldliness that he saw there among professing Christians. Well, to Pelagius, it seemed that many saw the Christian faith as a set of rituals and that the faith did not actually affect their moral behavior. And so Pelagius had a mission, and his mission was to carry out the ideals of monastic holiness and asceticism, to carry that to the whole church, the church as a, as a whole, to bring everybody to those ideals. Pelagius gathered disciples around him, and his movement grew. One of his disciples by the name of Celestius would become one of the most enthusiastic of Pelagius' followers. Now, what was his doctrine? Well, it's important to know that Pelagius was orthodox concerning the doctrine of the Trinity as was taught in Nicaea. But he was heretical in his beliefs concerning human nature and salvation. Here basically is what he taught. First of all, he taught all people are born as sinless as Adam was before Adam fell. So basically he taught an infant is born as, as a blank sheet of paper. No sin. Secondly, he taught that Adam's fall had not corrupted humanity's nature, but most of Adam's descendants followed his bad example into sin. So we're born without a corrupt nature, but the reason why we sin is we follow bad example. Number three, he taught man could choose or not choose to follow God according to his own free will because his nature was not corrupted by the fall. Number four, he taught that some of the Old Testament believers, like Daniel, remained sinless throughout their lives by a proper use of their free will. And he taught that that was still possible. And number five, he admitted that we need God's grace in order to be good. But how did he define God's grace? He said God's grace was the gift of natural free will. And that God's grace was also the gift of the moral law as an example, and of Christ as an example. So that's God's grace, free will, and the example of the law and of Christ. That's what Pelagius taught. Salvation, then, in the Pelagian doctrine was simply a reward for living a good life here on earth, not an undeserved gift given by grace through faith and purchased by the Savior. Now, Celestius and Pelagius fled from Rome in the year 410 because the Roman Empire was falling, and the city of Rome was captured by the German Visigoths, so they fled from there to northwest Africa. A council in Carthage then condemned both Celestius for heresy, or condemned him because he was, he was trying to get ordained as a presbyter, but they condemned him as a heretic. So after that, Celestius and Pelagius fled to the east, where they were attacked by Jerome for their teaching. And we talked about Jerome before, and if you remember your last uh, lesson. Although 
Pelagius and Celestius were acquitted of all the heresy at a Jerusalem council, the bishop of Rome, Innocent I, excommunicated both Celestius and Pelagius. The next bishop of Rome, by the name of Zosimus, allowed them to come back, but eventually excommunicated them again after being pressured by the emperor to excommunicate them because a group of Pelagians had beaten a, a Catholic who had been a, a former, uh, who was involved in the government there. And so the, Pelagius, the Pelagians beat him. He was a retired government official. So he said to the bishop, you need to excommunicate them. Finally, Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy in the year 431 at the Council of Ephesus. So that's just some things to say about Pelagianism. You can click on to the next one there. And uh, this was the teaching of Pelagius. Now, what was Augustine's role in this? Because Augustine was a strong opponent against Pelagius. Well, he wrote a few books, three of them. One of them was on nature and grace. The other one was on the grace of Christ and original sin. And the other one was on the spirit and the letter. Now, here basically was Augustine's doctrine. First of all, he taught when Adam sinned and fell, human nature sinned and fell in him because the entire human race was present in Adam, who was the head of the human race. Now, everyone is born into the world with a sinful nature. So this was the doctrine of original sin. We are not free in the sense that Pelagius taught, according to Augustine. We are free to do what we want to do, but what we want to do is to sin and to rebel. We are not free to do what we should do. We will only do what we should do by God's saving grace. That was Augustine's teaching. Our will is free in that when we sin, we sin willingly with our own consent and choice. We are not forced to sin, but we can be saved only by God's grace and transforming power. That was Augustine's teaching. Now here's what he taught on grace, and notice the complete opposite this is with Pelagius' teaching. Grace, he said, was not natural free will and the example of the law and of Christ, but the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. God created a good will in evil people, and God worked with that will to bear fruit in sanctification. So, in other words, grace is God's powerful, transforming work in us to change us. Now, <clears throat> in connection with this, obviously, was Augustine's teaching on predestination. I'll just quote from Nick Needham to sum up his teaching on predestination. Quote, Augustine was fond of quoting Christ's words to the disciples in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. From all eternity, Augustine said, God had chosen the sinners he would save and predestined them to become Christians. They were the elect. The rest God left in their own sinful desires. This was not unfair because no one deserved to be saved. If God chose some sinners for salvation in Christ, that was pure mercy and grace. If he left others in their own self-centered slavery to sin, that was merely justice and righteousness. So that was Augustine's teaching on that. Now, this is all familiar doctrine to us. But what we might be unaware of is also linked with this was Augustine's teaching concerning temporary and eternal salvation. We know uh, that 
when, let me put it this way. I would argue that according to scripture, if someone is elect, eventually in their life, they will repent and they will believe. And by God's grace, they will persevere in that faith unto the end, right? If somebody professes to have become a Christian and later turn away from the faith, never to return, completely apostatize, it demonstrates and testifies to the fact that they were never truly converted. Everyone who's truly converted will persevere unto the end, and they are the ones that are elect. If they don't persevere, they were not elect, and they were never genuinely converted. Augustine didn't exactly think that way. He taught, a little bit different than the Reformers, temporary and eternal salvation. And here's how he did that. This, again, quotes Nicomedes. Quote, however, Augustine did not think that all Christians were elect. It was, he argued, clear from scripture and experience that there were some believers who fell away and lost their salvation. God had granted them a temporary salvation, but had not elected them to eternal salvation. Election bestowed on a believer the extra gift of perseverance, staying a believer to the end of one's life. So they, he taught that somebody could actually become a Christian, but actually then turn away and become a non-Christian again, and they were not elect. So they were a Christian for a time, but were not elect. Whereas those who are truly elect become Christians, and they're also given the gift of perseverance, and they turn away. Whereas the, now, what's the difference between Augustine and what, what we would argue here? Is that if someone turns away, they were never a Christian at all. He would say, no, they were a Christian for a time, they just never were. So again, this goes back to his misunderstanding of the church. This understanding that grace is conveyed through the sacraments and through baptism. So someone actually became a Christian through those sacraments, but then later turned away and were not a Christian at all. And it just evidences that they weren't elect. Do, do you see the difference between what Augustine taught concerning that and the Reformers? I, I hope we're kind of being clear concerning that issue. And obviously this includes misreading some of the texts in the New Testament about falling away. Not understanding that they were never truly a Christian at all. Thus, no Christian on earth could be absolutely sure that he was, in fact, one of the elect. It all depended on whether God had granted him the additional gift of perseverance. And no one could know that unless he actually persevered to the end. Christians, therefore, had to remain without complete certainty regarding their eternal destiny, seeking to persevere in holiness and at the same time praying for the grace of perseverance. Nevertheless, Augustine counseled those who did this to have a good hope that they were indeed among the elect. Augustine also taught against Pelagian concepts of sinlessness. Again, quoting from Needham. Augustine criticized the sinless perfection teachings of Pelagius and Celestius. No one, Augustine taught, not even the greatest saint, would ever be perfectly free from sin in the present life. The true Christian life was not sinless perfection, but a daily desperate struggle with the sin that still dwelt in human nature. It was the same point Augustine made against the Donatists when they claimed to be a pure church. But at least the Donatists made purity a fruit of God's grace, not human free will. So those are some of Augustine's teachings. Any questions or comments about this? Uh, in any of Yes, Mike.
We can click on to the next one. Then we had a mediating view. So oftentimes in theological controversies, you have two sides. And then maybe for good or maybe not for good, you have some who kind of come in between and say, well, a compromising view. And so that's where semi-Pelagianism comes in. Now, some think we should call it semi-Augustinianism, but it's mostly known as semi-Pelagianism. Uh, a small group of writers from southern France began to promote this view, one of them being John Cassian, who we mentioned before. He was a father of Western monasticism. Augustine had to deal with this, but Augustine believed that semi-Pelagians were fellow believers in Christ. And so he was more gentle with them, uh, but he was against Pelagians as, as uh, heretics. Here's what Nick Needham says about them. Quote, the semi-Pelagians agreed with Augustine that the whole human race had fallen in Adam and that sinners could not become Christians or do spiritually good without the powerful help of God's grace. But they insisted that although a sinner could not save himself,
He could at least cry out to God for saving grace, just as a sick person might not be able to heal himself, but he could at least take himself to the doctor. Conversion was therefore a joint product of the divine and human will working together, a view known as synergism from the Greek working together. And so when we talk about this controversy, even today, I think good terminology to use is the issue of the, the debate between synergism and monergism. Especially if you're talking to someone who doesn't agree with you on these things, you can talk about Calvinism, Arminianism, and even a lot of people today, oh, don't call me an Arminian because I don't agree with everything Arminians taught. And when you say Calvinism, they might think, oh, you disagree with everything Calvin taught. And did, didn't, wasn't Calvin involved with the burning of Servetus? A lot of misunderstanding there, but we'll get to that, Lord willing, later on in this, this history series. But a lot of times when you just use the terms synergism and monergism, that can kind of help clear the air a little bit. And you explain that synergism is the belief that man and God are working together to accomplish redemption. Whereas monergism is the belief that it's all of grace. It's all of grace that a person is saved. Semi-Pelagianism did not deny the necessity of grace, but the sufficiency of grace. And it's basically the same in Roman Catholic theology today. The Roman Catholic theology is basically semi-Pelagian because Rome's sacramental system today must have the autonomous will of man in that sacramental system. Now, I got this example here from James White, and he said he got it from one of his professors from Musical, but here's basically uh, explaining the distinction here. Pelagianism is like you have a pit, and there's a man in the pit, and then there's the ladder there to help him come out. And the man is there in the pit. He's alive, and he is healthy. All he needs is the right example, and he'll go up the ladder out of the pit. That's Pelagianism. Okay? And then you have semi-Pelagianism. There's a man in the pit, and the ladder is there, but the man has a broken leg. And so what he needs to do is he needs the help of someone to be able to heal that leg. And so he needs to ask for that help and he can climb the ladder to come out. Grace is offered. It's a view known as pervenient grace. But he must, by his own free will, choose to accept that grace. And then third, you have Augustinianism, which is the view that you have the pit and there's the man in the pit. But the man isn't well, the man isn't sick or injured, he's dead. He's just laying there. Okay? So you have the ladder comes down, and what he must do to climb that ladder is he needs to be resurrected. Okay? Not just healed, he needs to be resurrected from the dead. Another example is the hospital bed, where you have somebody laying in the hospital bed, he's sick, he just needs to ask for the medicine and for the help. That would be semi-Pelagianism. Augustinianism is he's not laying in a hospital bed, he's laying in a coffin. And what he needs is the resurrection miracle to occur for him to get up. This is the views concerning grace. Pelagianism believed that grace was neither necessary nor sufficient. Semi-Pelagianism believed that grace was necessary but not sufficient. Augustinianism believed grace was necessary and sufficient. So you see the differences there. Eventually, at the Council of Orange, semi-Pelagianism was uh, proclaimed as the right view that was believed in uh, the, many of the churches at that time. Vincent of Lorenz, who was a semi-Pelagian, wrote that a test of Catholic doctrine was that it had been believed, quote, everywhere, always by everyone in the church. He said that Augustine's doctrine of sovereign predestination and man's helpless slavery and sin was, quote, believed nowhere 
at no time by no one. And so that was one of the arguments that he used. Now, in our own study of church history in here, I would completely disagree with that statement, actually. We saw in some of the early writings, like the letter of Clement to the Corinthians and the letter to Diomenes, this view of grace, I believe, was really clear in those early documents that we have not long after the New Testament was completed. But Augustine said this in response to that, and I want to read this for you here. First of all, McNeedham says, An Augustinian might reply that it had been believed by Jesus and the apostles. Augustine himself argued that his view was present in an undeveloped form in the writings of earlier fathers, especially Cyprian and Ambrose. It was only the rise of Pelagianism, Augustine contended, that was now forcing the church to think out clearly the relationship between grace and free will. Augustine's verdict on those who came before him was this, quote, Why should we need to search into the works of those who, prior to this heresy, were under no obligation to concern themselves with solving this knotty question, which they would undoubtedly have done if they had been obliged to deal with such matters? Therefore, what they thought about the grace of God they have shortly and swiftly handled in some parts of their writings. But they dealt at length with those matters in which they refuted the enemies of the church in exhorting people to every good quality whereby to serve the living and true God for the purpose of attaining life eternal and genuine happiness. So his issue was, look, my view was there in earlier writings, but it wasn't so developed because the church wasn't dealing with these issues at that time. And remember, we mentioned before that the first great work even on the atonement wasn't written until the fourth century because the church was dealing with other matters. So oftentimes these things take place over time. Throughout the Middle Ages, many Western theologians were Augustinian uh, concerning their views of grace and sin, and the reformers ended up being that. But the East followed semi-Pelagianism. In fact, Eastern Orthodoxy today, Eastern Orthodox individuals, they do not look very highly at all on Augustine for many reasons, but this is one of those reasons. Pelagius eventually died in the year 419. I just want to end with this, because I don't want to stop and wait for this part for next week. I'll just end with this. Talking just a little bit about Augustine and the Reformation. The Protestant reformers never viewed themselves as establishing a new church. They freely quoted the church fathers, and they interpreted the fathers in light of Scripture, not the other way around. Remember, we talked about how that's important. We don't interpret scripture by the church fathers. We interpret the church fathers by scripture. Both Roman Catholics and Protestants freely quoted Augustine in debating each other. Why? Because they both could. Roman Catholic theologians could quote Augustine in his doctrine of the church. The reformers could quote Augustine in his doctrine of grace. The Protestant Reformation then was the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. And let me give you one final quote and we'll be finished from Nick Needham. Quote, because of Augustine's view of the Catholic Church, he held that the grace which saved the elect was channeled through the one true church and its sacraments. If anyone lived and died outside the Catholic Church, that showed he was not one of the elect. This was the type of Augustinianism which prevailed in the Middle Ages in the West. Later, the Protestant reformers rejected Augustine's doctrine of the church and taught that the Holy Spirit bestowed grace on the elect by creating personal faith in the gospel written or preached. In this way, the reformers liberated God's grace from its confinement in one exclusive church. The Protestant Reformation has often been called the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. And you can then see why. 
I'd like to say more, but it's about that time. So any last questions or comments? And then we'll be finished. Okay. Well, I hope this was uh, useful and enlightening to you. So Lord willing, next time we'll continue with the doctrine. We're going to look at the many ways, the many ways that doctrine influences people and why we in many ways don't realize what we're Father, we thank you that in your providence you have so allowed us to be able to study the history of your people, and we can look back 